Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Have you ever had a situation in your life that seemed on the surface to be a really bad thing, but ended up being one of the best things that ever has happened to you. Our guest today has experienced that, and I think that this is a great and timely message for us right now, but really for anyone in the future. We all have difficulties in our lives, and a lot of how we experience them and a lot of the fruit that comes from them all depends on how we decide to handle them. Our guest today is the CEO of Hancock Lumber Company, which is actually one of the oldest companies in America, and it's a six-time recipient of the Best Places to Work in Maine Award. In 2010, at the peak of the national housing and mortgage market collapse, our guest acquired a rare neurological voice disorder called spasmodic dysphonia, which remains with him to this day. When his own voice became weakened, he developed a new leadership style focused on strengthening the voice of others. He's now a champion of a work culture where everyone leads and every voice is trusted, respected, and heard. His new book, The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership, shares the philosophy, values, and strategies that Hancock Lumber Company has embraced on its journey toward becoming an employee-centric company. Here is Kevin Hancock. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Josh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. So are you ready to get started with these? Yes, ready. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Wow, saying right here on my desk beside me is uh, Gandhi's iconic quote, uh, we must be the change we wish to see in the world. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is self-aware, humble, and appreciative. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? In what way do I need to change? And that's focused on asking oneself that question. That's right. <laughs> good, good clarifying point there. <laughs> <laughs> what is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Well, I love all of Jim Collins's books, especially Built to Last, Good to Great, and How the Mighty Fall. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? It would be to focus a bit less on others and a bit more on ourselves. 
Interesting. Usually someone would say the opposite. I think I know why you're saying that. I, I want to delve into that a little bit later on. But we have our, our final question here, which we call our arbitrary but insightful question. And it is this. <laughs> As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I would say why not? Why not challenges the, the, the paradigms of uh, what we're currently doing, and it expands the zone of thinking in terms of what might be possible. Well, Kevin, we are here today to talk about your leadership, talk about your business, and your new book, The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. And so I'd like to start off by letting you talk for a second about this idea of shared leadership. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that essentially is that throughout history, leadership slash power has often been something that was collected and centralized and acquired. You gathered it, and that's how you built uh, empires. And while that may have worked or been the most traditional approach historically, I don't believe in a period of human awakening in the 21st century that that approach will continue to carry the day and that actually what's needed today is its opposite, which is leadership models that disperse power and give strength to others and share leadership broadly. And talk for a second about your book, The Seventh Power. What does it add to the conversation in regards to this idea of leading a business and using a shared leadership model to do so? The Seventh Power is actually a concept that comes from the Lakota Sioux tribes on the northern plains, and it represents the power of the individual human spirit, and it would be something akin to that iconic line from Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, the strength of the pack is the wolf. And the idea that is that if every individual is living a full, authentic life, speaking with their own true voice, then uh, the entire tribe will be made strong. So it's really about that idea that the group is strong so long as the individuals that comprise it are healthy and strong. And I want to get to how you as a leader can make sure that the people in your organization are healthy and strong. But as we read in the bio, you acquired this rare neurological voice disorder called spasmodic dysphonia. And I'd love to hear how that has influenced the way you think about leadership. We also talked about how you really care about helping people find their own voice and making sure that every voice is trusted, respected, and heard. Is that something that came out of your experience with spasmodic dysphonia, or is that something that you had already developed as a leader? It came out of my voice condition. So in 2010, a decade ago, at the peak of the national housing and mortgage market collapse, 
I uh, began to have trouble speaking, something I never thought about, always taken for granted and done a lot of. And of course, when you're a CEO, one might say that your primary tool is your voice. And suddenly I couldn't really use it. I've, I've recovered a good bit since, but then it was super difficult to string together even a few short sentences. When it's uh, hard to talk, you end up developing strategies for doing less of it. <laughs> and mine at the time, Josh, was simple. I just began answering questions with a question, thereby putting the conversation right back on someone else. So in that classic scene, someone would come up to me at work because I was the CEO with a question or a problem, and I began responding by simply saying, that is a good question. What do you think we should do about it? And while initially this was a voice protection move on my part in time, I got really excited about what I saw through this question, which was simply that people actually already knew what to do. They didn't actually need a CEO-centric solution or a top-down directive for the vast majority of challenges they faced in the course of the day. They knew what to do. And so really, it was just about encouraging them to do it and make it safe for them to do it. And that's when I really got excited about this idea of, uh, well, my own voice condition might have limited uh, my ability to speak at times, but maybe it was an invitation to strengthen the voices of others. We have 550 people at our company, and I get thinking about this idea that uh, a little bit of a loss in my own voice traded in for uh, the magnification of 550 other voices could be a pretty cool and powerful exercise not just on an economic level, but on a social human level. And I love that idea. I love that that attitude. One of the questions that I have for you is, was that a difficult transition? Because as a CEO, as a leader, you like to think that you are essential. And I, I have no doubt that you are. But sometimes our understanding of what it means to be essential is different than actually being essential. And and when you are allowing other people to come to conclusions and come to decisions, that can kind of be a, a touchy thing. Was it was it tough for you as you realized that other people often already had the answers? Was it a tough thing for you to relinquish some control? Or was it something that you kind of grew into because of this voice disorder that you acquired? That's a great question. It really was a function at the time of I had no choice because I I couldn't really talk very much. And I always have valued people and held people in high esteem in an optimistic way. I've always seen the good in people, but I was also always, before my voice condition, a pretty traditional leader where I was always presiding. I was always talking. I was always in the center 
of the stage and it took this kind of jolt to my system in terms of my voice condition to get that to change. But in short order, what I saw was much more enticing to me and I would never go back. I had a dream about six months ago that a, an angel, if you will, had showed up and offered to back me up in my life prior to the voice condition. And I got so scared in the dream uh, about not wanting to go because, as I said in the dream, if, um, if I back up, I might not get my voice disorder again, <laughs> meaning that now at this point in my life, what I've gotten from the little bit of a limitation I have has been so much richer and fuller and more dynamic than what I've given up that I see it as a gift, not a hindrance or a liability. I love that attitude. And one of the things that you just said is that you were a more traditional CEO. Your business is a family business that's been around. I think you are the sixth generation. And obviously, as one of the, the older businesses in the United States, you have done something, your family has done something that has allowed you to have staying power and to be effective. So even though you've changed in your leadership approach, I'd love for you to speak just a second to what it looks like to have a business that lasts for so many generations and continues to be healthy. And even today, as we said in the bio, you are recognized as one of the best places to work in Maine. How do you do that? How do you have that staying power and consistency over such a long period of time? So our company goes back to 1848 before the first cannonball was fired in the Civil War. And people sometimes will ask, what's the key to having a, an organization that's that old? And I'll often start by playfully saying, well, you would have had to have begun a really long time ago. So <laughs> that's the first key, you know. And, and you think about it, we're in New England, where the first businesses began in this country and were in the forest products industry, which was one of the first businesses. And, and so, you know, that's part of the opportunity. But beyond that, if someone said, what are the keys to that type of longevity? I think that A, it does take some luck and good fortune. It takes persistence. It takes a lot of people across a lot of generations caring for the institution. And then it takes the ability to change and constantly be willing to reinvent your business while staying committed to a set of endearing values that are transgenerational, bigger than any single generation. So in your book, The Seventh Power, you talk about your journey into this idea, into this practice of shared leadership. We've already gotten some of your story here, but could you talk about a little bit of what this journey included, especially the things that can be helpful for the leaders who are listening to this podcast today? Sure. Well, it really took off for me in 2012 when I started traveling to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in the remote southwest corner of South Dakota, and there 
long story short, I encountered an entire community that felt like it was not fully heard. And putting my own experience together with theirs, I got thinking about, you know, there are lots of ways for humans to lose a piece of their voice in this world. And that perhaps even the very purpose of a human life on Earth was to find one's voice, one's own authentic voice and self-actualize. But unfortunately, across time, leaders of established organizations have probably done more to limit and restrict and intimidate and direct the voices of others than to free them. And that's when I started to see the invitation in my own voice. But I think having said that, to specifically answer your question, the big epiphany or turning point for me was starting to see uh, the business of business as being more than just business, not to throw that word in too many times, but to start to see the real mission of business as a human exercise of which uh, profit was really just an outcome, an important outcome of a higher calling, which was creating uh, a work culture where everyone could have a voice and be heard. So I'm curious, I don't want to just start throwing terms around that not everyone in the audience may be familiar with, but would you say that this type of thinking that you've developed over time through your experiences, both personally and working with other people, would you say that this is somewhat connected to the idea of conscious capitalism or do you not see these two running side by side? No, I would have since become quite connected to the conscious capitalist movement. At the time I was doing what I was doing to build this. I hadn't heard of it, but uh, it's very much connected. I've been talking about at our company, the idea of creating an employee-centric company, an employee-centric company, where the first priority of the business is to make sure that the people who work at the company have a meaningful experience, that that work is meaningful in more than just economic ways. I really believe uh, we have to change the world right beside us. When you look out broadly, it becomes too big and too overwhelming. But when you look at the world right beside you, that's something you can get your hands around, and that's a place where you can create change. And I've really kind of built our whole mission around the potential of a single question, which is this. What if everybody on Earth felt trusted, respected, valued, heard, and safe? What might change? And I think everything might change. I literally think everything might change. And so then you have to say, well, where might that change occur? And I think the place of work 
is an exceptional candidate site for that change to occur first because so many people work globally. Three billion people work and work functions better when the responsibilities and opportunities of leadership are shared broadly. So there are leaders who are listening to this and who may like the sound of this. However, it can be a little bit difficult to bring about a change that is that large scale, that massive. And I would love to hear from you about any insights you have in that regard. How do you bring aspects of this shared leadership idea into an organization, especially when you don't have the same situation that you've gone through. You you had this this situation that really has allowed you, and you've, you've talked about it as a, a very positive thing, allowed you to enter into this idea of shared leadership in a very organic way. Not everyone has that. Do you have any recommendations so that people can bring this shared leadership approach into what they do? Yeah, that's a great question, Josh. I appreciate that. The uh, first thing I'd like to say on that subject is when a lot of people hear this story or approach for the first time, the worry is, well, this means like anarchy and chaos because everyone can just do what they want. (laughs) And what we've found is just the opposite, that taking the time to have authentic dialogue and include people in decision-making increases discipline, increases alignment, increases productivity, and increases unity. People are more apt to support that which they help create. And we found that people don't always have to have their exact way as long as they believe that the discussion processes are sincere and authentic. Now, having said that, to the other part of your question, we were able to create this change of culture with just three tactical changes. First, we changed the mission of the company. This is such an underestimated but powerful move. We made our first mission the experience of the employees. And our first priority is to be meaningful to them, to set the flywheel of success, if you will, in motion at the point of the employee experience with the belief that if they're having a world-class experience, they will make sure the customer does too and that the company is cared for. So we start with a new mission and then we needed a metric to measure that mission so we knew how we were doing. So there we made our new primary metric employee engagement and we measure that through an annual third-party administered survey designed to measure engagement. Everybody in the company takes it. We get this really rich data set of feedback that is the voice of the company. And we simply asked our managers, that produces a score in the survey, and we simply asked our managers to make driving that score their top work metric priority. 
So yeah, we measure profit and revenue and productivity and accuracy and inventory and all the things everybody else does, but we've made our primary first metric the employee experience. And if you ask managers to improve the employee experience as their first priority, and you give them a few tools and resources to do it, it's actually pretty intuitive how to go about doing it. So we reset our mission, we found a new metric, and then we just talked a lot about a a fresh definition of leadership, that if you were a manager or a supervisor, leadership was something to be dispersed, not collected. And for everybody else in the organization, leadership was something to be accepted and shared, not spectated or rejected. And we were able over time to create substantial change in our performance on the heels of those three sub changes. I love that. Having an employee focused mission, having metrics that are also employee focused, and then having a definition of leadership that engages all of the people within the organization to accept leadership, or if they're already in leadership roles, to be giving that leadership away. Now, you were saying earlier something about the health of those employees. Could you speak to that a little bit? What do you do to encourage and create a a healthy culture? And when I say healthy culture, I mean a culture of people that are going to work, they're healthy and happy and engaged and able to do their work well. Yeah, great question. And I think there are obviously a lot of pieces to that. But one that comes to mind at the top is making uh, work a safe place for people to say what they actually think, first of all, and a safe place for people to make decisions and initiate action. So I think that's the critical ingredient. And what we've really tried to do is change the the very purpose of listening. Uh, Listening is for understanding, not judgment. So when someone says something in a huddle in our company, that really the only response that's needed uh, is geez, thank you so much for sharing that. Or if you want to understand it better, thank you so much for sharing that. Could you tell me more about that? When I was younger, I used to listen to evaluate answers. And now I listen just to understand answers. And that's really uh, accepting the idea that the truth about a company is plural, not singular. That the truth is what everybody's seeing and experiencing. And the biggest gift a company could have or a leadership team could have is to know what everybody actually thinks. That's such a powerful gift. And it's pretty easy to create it actually because it's intuitive and something that everybody can support. Now, 
there's something that you said at the very beginning of the interview and in our initial questions that I told you I wanted to circle back around to, and I want to do that now. And that is this idea of focusing less on others and more on yourself. That's usually said in the opposite way. Usually people will say, I should focus on myself less and focus on others more. But why do you say focus on others less and focus on yourself more? At the simplest level, if you ask a thousand people at work, if they wished across their career, they'd been more closely supervised and directed or less. The answer, I think, would be would be pretty clear that people are well-intentioned and they're talented and they know what to do and they're fully capable of leading. Now, having said that, the other reason I'm such a big believer in that approach is simply to ask oneself, who is the human being that you can most influence? And that's self-evident as well, that the only person any of us can really change is ourselves. And I have found that the best way to create change within an organization is to become it. And this is really about self-awareness and trying to transcend ego. You know, I I can look at any challenge or problem in our company, any anybody might raise and trace it directly back to me and what I either did to contribute to it or didn't do to contribute to it. And I have found that my own management life has gotten a lot easier and more effective as I focused on how I need to change a bit more and really trusted that if I change, that will uh, ripple and enable or create change in others as well. Well, Kevin, I want to give you a second before we finish out our interview to maybe give us some insight from the seventh power that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, or maybe reiterate something that you think is really important for the listeners to take away from this interview. Thank you. There's a, there's one scene in the book that's pivotal for my own experience, and and I love to share. I was uh, walking a few years ago in the Arizona desert at sunset, thinking about all that we've discussed today, Josh, and kind of looking for a clarifying reason behind it all, like why reorganize leadership and Uh, It hit me at about sunset that night in the desert. These five words came to me and they stopped me in my tracks. And those words simply were, in nature, power is dispersed. And I stopped and I looked around and I actually began posing a series of leadership questions to the desert out loud. And I said, as I stood there, where's the capital of this desert? Where is its headquarters? Where's the CEO? Where are the managers? Where are the supervisors? Which one of these cactus is in charge of all the others? And the answer to me in each case was abundantly clear. The leadership power of nature is scattered and diffused. It lives in all its parts and pieces, great and small. 
and humans who are part of nature, not disconnected from it, ultimately aspire to organize in this same way. And in the 21st century, as more and more humans awaken to their own sacred intrinsic value, I think that uh, leadership and organizational structure has got to evolve to meet that, to disperse the power and put our management governance systems more in line with the natural order of the universe. I think when you work in sync with nature's sacred rules, you have the wind at your back, and when you work against them, it's like paddling up the river. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing with us this idea of shared leadership from your experience and just giving us some great leadership insight in general. If people have liked what they've heard from you today and want to follow up and read your book, The Seventh Power, where would you recommend they go and where would you recommend they go to follow up with you and learn more about the work that you do? Thank you. Yeah, the book just came out a couple of weeks ago, so it's super fresh. It's uh, published by Post Hill Press out of Nashville, distributed by Simon & Schuster, and it's available anywhere books are sold, which today is often, you know, right online uh, through Amazon or Barnes & Nobles or a site like that. And if you'd like to learn more or talk to me, I'd love to listen. And my personal website is www.kevin D, the letter D, Hancock.com, kevindhancock.com. And I respond to everybody that reaches out to me. All righty. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Josh, thank you so much for helping to uh, share a piece of my voice. I appreciate you. So this is one of those episodes that, for me, helps to reshape and shift the paradigm of my leadership thinking a little bit. I really appreciated Kevin's message, and I think that there are a lot of things in here that leaders could take and apply in their own organizations and on their own teams to help them lead more effectively and empower those around them to become leaders as well. And my first of today's three key takeaways is just that, actually. It's the idea that people often already know what to do. And so it's our job as leaders to empower them and also make it safe for them to take action. The second key takeaway is a question that Kevin posed, which is this. If everyone on earth felt trusted, respected, valued, heard, and safe, what would change? And his response is that he thinks a whole lot would change. And I think that he's spot on right there. At the same time, this isn't a matter of sitting around and talking about how we feel and our emotions all the time. There is a whole lot more to this, and that leads to the third key takeaway, which is this. Shared leadership increases discipline, alignment, productivity, and unity. It's not something that has people sitting around talking about how they feel, and it doesn't lead to everyone going their own direction and doing their own thing and anarchy like Kevin talked about. But what it does do is helps everyone not only to have a vested interest in the company, but to realize that their insight and their actions actually make a difference within the organization. And that is what leads to the discipline, alignment, productivity, and unity. As always, if you want to connect with Kevin, go ahead and look at the show notes below or go to lifeasleadership.com slash 072. 
Now, at the beginning of next week, we're going to have a really interesting episode. Basically, if you want to connect with someone famous, this is the guy that can help you do it. He's made it possible for someone to get married by the Pope in the Vatican. He has helped people connect with the likes of Elon Musk and Elton John. And he's also been able to organize once-in-a-lifetime trips, like going to the bottom of the ocean and visiting the Titanic. As you might imagine, he has some great advice on how to connect with people and communicate more effectively. And we have a really enjoyable conversation. I hope you'll join us then. And until then... Keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist... It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and, frankly, better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.